Good morning. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version of God's Word today. Please turn with me to 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 18. So here's 1 John chapter 3, starting from verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. May God bless this reading of his word. Thank you. This morning, as we prepare to hear from the Lord, let's bow our hearts together in prayer. Uh, Father God, we're so grateful that you have given us breath today to sing your praise. We're grateful that you have given us this one life to somehow have an encounter with the living, holy God of all creation. Father, now as we bow before you, we acknowledge that we need to hear thoughts that we would not think on our own. So open our ears to hear your word. Give us clarity of thought. Rise up and reveal truth to us that we might be the kind of people who would know your pleasure. Do this for your name's sake, we pray. Amen. You know, I have this feeling, uh, living in the relative comfort of Singapore, that we uh, may have some difficulty imagining the context, what it was like for that old apostle as he wrote these words that have just been read for us. I have this sense that we have such a blessing to live in a land of peace. We can walk about this country without fear, without much anxiety. We don't even have flooding in this country. Just ponding. I don't know if we have to edit that out or not. The, the, point, the point is sometimes it's difficult for, for us to understand Scripture because we don't really understand the context in which it was written. And, and I think we need to understand that as this old apostle was writing these words, he had already seen unspeakable things. Uh, he had seen things that we likely could not even imagine. 
when he was writing these words, James, the first pastor of the church in Jerusalem, had already been stoned to death. And Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, he had died eight years previous to the time when, he, when John was sitting down to write these words. And John Mark, the missionary, the first one to preserve the gospel in the book we call the Gospel of Mark, he had been dragged through the streets until bones and ligaments were exposed and left to die. Luke, the beloved doctor, dead. Even Paul, the great defender of the faith. And I miss Barnabas. Who couldn't love Barnabas? Hung on an olive tree. Dead. Now think about that for a moment. Just, just think about what you would write about if every spiritual leader you admired had been violently taken out of your life. What kind of WhatsApp messages would you be sending? And what kind of emails would you be sending out? What kind of prayer requests? See, see, this is the evidence of a man who had been radically transformed. In spite of the fact that he had seen so much horror, rather than write about how difficult it is to be persecuted, rather than write about how, how we can survive this, or, or, or how to have you know, several fun meals for a single person, all alone abandoned on an island, he writes about the very essence of the faith. I had to look up that word, essence, just to make sure it means what I think it does. Essence is the intrinsic nature or an indispensable quality of something. In other words, without this, it is not that. Without this indispensable quality, when you think of an orange, what would have to be missing for you to say, this is not an orange? That's its essence, the essence of orange. Why, why does it even matter? It matters because all of us, no matter where we were born, all of us are the product of Christian missions. Now, this is Francis Xavier, or Javier, I would say. <clears throat> he was used of God to first bring the gospel to this part of the world. All of us are products of Christian missions. In my part of the world, it was Jean Cabot, who first brought a colonial ship and the gospel to my nation, or the place that became my nation. All of us are the product of Christian missions. So missionaries taught us what to think, taught us what to believe, sometimes even taught us how to cut our hair and how to dress, but sometimes how we were to act was not always obvious. So I want to suggest to you, because we are products of Christian missions, we sometimes will just reproduce what was given to us. So we reproduce the information we received. And when someone adopts that information, we classify them as Christians. And I want to say there are casualties to this global spread of Christian information. Casualties like the Sultanate of Malacca, where Sherry and I lived for 12 years. It's a state now of Malaysia that's 
full of Christian information, but, but not many Christians. Casualties like my own nation that was founded on Christian principles. Our national anthem is a prayer to God, and yet it is a country today where the majority of people, 66%, say, my religious preference is nothing. And the fastest growing religion in Canada is Buddhism. It's a, it's, it's a, it's your neighbors next door. At least one of my neighbors said to me, no, hey, Mr. Ian, no need to tell me anything about the Bible. I grew up in Methodist school. I know all the Bible stories. And also has an idol named Kuan Yin. You see, you see we've, we've, in this urgent missional effort to spread the news of Christ all over the world, we have bombarded the nations with information but sometimes have forgotten to expose the nations to the essence, the indispensable quality of our faith. This is what captivated John. Even though all of his friends had been killed, even though the church that was surviving was intensely persecuted, he wrote about the essence of the Christian faith. He wrote about Love. You don't like this reputation? It's a casualty. See, the, these sisters have got this deep sense of shock and awe, not because they've discovered some deep spiritual truth in the books that they hold in their laps, but they heard some little salacious rumor that was more fascinating than the book that sits in their laps. We can all be potentially casualties of this urge to bombard the nations with Christian dogma, but a failure to expose the nations and each other to the essence of the God whom we follow. Uh, I, I'm not sure if you know this smug intellectual. His name is Charles Colson. Uh, he was one of the most powerful men in Washington, D.C. Uh, hardly anyone ever called him Charles or even Mr. Colson. Everyone called him the president's hatchet man because if the president had dirty deeds to be done, he did them dirt cheap. He was the guy who made heads roll. Everyone was nervous in his presence. And then in 1975, he got caught up in a bit of a scandal. You may have heard of it, called Watergate. And this man, Charles Colson, along with several others, got sent to prison for obstruction of justice. And while he was in prison, something happened to the president's hatchet man. Some men from a local church started to visit him. He shared life with him. And then word came out of that prison that the president's hatchet man had got, ooh, religion. And, and so a reporter from the Washington Post went and visited him. And, and in the interview that he took notes on, he would say, come on, you know, I, I know you, Charles. You're an intellectual. 
You don't easily embrace these like religious myths, Christian, Buddhist, whatever. You don't do that. What did these guys say to you that so easily convinced the president's hatchet man to suddenly get religion and become a holy roller Bible thumper? What in the world did they say to you? And you know what he said? He said, um, I don't remember. <laughs> the reporter was like, please, man. I'll, I'll keep this off the record. Just what, what did they say that convinced you? Like, I'd like to know myself, you know, acting like he was also interested. And Charles Coase said, no, no, serious. I don't remember what they said, but this one thing I know. In the middle of my mess, these guys loved me. They loved me. See, see the... The president's hatchet man became a child of the king, not because Christianity suddenly intellectually made sense to him. It's not because he took notes and had lots of information on the gospel. He's a child of the king because in his moment of greatest need, when he was unlovable, somebody exposed him to the essence of our fellowship in Christ. Someone exposed him to affection. So let's first notice John's exhortation to love. Verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, I think it's fairly obvious to you. He is clearly saying, I'm not telling you something new. I haven't heard a new revelation from God. I'm simply reminding you of something that you've heard from the very beginning. It's not a new concept. In fact, it's not even a new concept in this letter. Three weeks ago, Sam Bay preached the same sermon. We have to love one another. He just can't get off of it. He, he went several verses, and then he ran back to the essence of who we are. Just, just remember, this is not a new concept. I'm just reminding you of the words of Jesus in John 15. I wrote that too when Jesus said, my command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Now, now there's two things about that command. First, kind of obvious. If it's command, it's not optional. It's, it's not conditional. He didn't say, love each other, except not Judas, because he's going to betray me, not Peter, because he's impetuous, he jumps out of boats, he, he says he's going to do things, and he doesn't follow through. In fact, don't even love each other, because all of you are going to run away, except I love John, he's going to stay with me. There was no condition. It's a command. Don't love people if they're lovable. Love one another as I have loved you. So the first thing we ought to understand about this is a command, it's not optional. It's not a part of what we do. It's not a program. It's everything. Then second, I don't know if you've noticed this, but that command is singular. My command is this. That, that means we could do a whole lot of things wrong. We, we could have lousy messages. We, we can have boring pastors. We can have horrible music. We could sing horribly. But if we do this one thing, 
without the strategic plans, if we do this one thing, we will know the pleasure of God. This one thing. Love one another as I have loved you. Now I need to introduce you for a minute uh, to Kevin the Baptist. Not John the Baptist. This, this is Kevin the Baptist. Now I unfortunately don't have a photo of him. Uh, but he was living in the same town Sherry and I were living in when, when I was teaching at the Baptist Seminary in Canada. So <clears throat> this is um, the town, Cochrane. And um, the seminary is up on the hill, so this photo is taken from the seminary. Looking down on Cochrane, it's a small town, 33,000 people. Um, to the west is the Rocky Mountains. To the east is the hill where the seminary is at. And this was <clears throat> several kilos ago, so I was playing football or soccer two times a week, down in the valley on, on the soccer pitches, public uses. And, and people would show up, you play with whoever shows up. And, and one uh, Tuesday, Kevin showed up. And uh, we just briefly met because we were on the same team, meaning we were wearing kind of the same color clothes. We were all guys playing, so there's only two colors, whitish and not white. <laughs> so, so we're playing together, and after the, after the game is over, um, we were sitting on the side of the pitch, just talking like guys do. We don't have much when we talk. It's basically, what do you do? And then we're done. So I asked him what he, what he does. He said, oh, I'm an engineer in, in Calgary. And then he asked me, what do you do? And this is always awkward for me because I, I generally have to point up the hill. I said, well, I, I teach at the seminary up the hill. Now, right away I knew that Kevin was something Christian. Because right away he said, oh, you, you train pastors and missionaries, do you? And I was like, what? Because usually in Cochrane, I would say, I, I teach at the seminary up in the hill. People would say, oh, I didn't even know there was graves up there. <laughs> I, I said, yeah, I, I do. I, I train pastors and, and missionaries. And, and I said to him, no, Ke Kevin, do you, you have some kind of church background? He says, yeah, I'm Baptist. Kevin the Baptist. See, in Canada, we don't introduce ourselves by our last names because we're not that friendly. So, Kevin the Baptist. And, and then there was this kind of moment of awkwardness because I, I teach at the Baptist seminary and my brother pastors the only Baptist church in town. That's it right there. And I'm meeting Kevin the Baptist for the first time playing football. So, he says, yeah, I, I know it's... It's kind of awkward. I'm, I'm not that kind of Baptist. No, I get that because, you know, there's 85 different Baptist groups in the world, like Singapore Baptists. I'm not talking about National Baptists. I mean, there's North American Baptists. There's Seventh-day Baptists because Saturday's the Sabbath. There's Reformed Baptists. There's Southern Baptists, North American Baptists. There's all kinds of Baptists. But Kevin just happens to belong to the largest Baptist denomination in the world, which is never go to church Baptist. So he began to feel really awkward. He said, I know, I'm the, I'm the worst. I said, no, I said, you're not the worst because you don't have to go to church to be a Baptist, right? Not, not if he's a part of the largest Baptist denomination in the world. Just, you know, go in the grave, get wet. Baptist. In, in fact, you don't even need to go to church to worship. Some of you could have just stayed home sang in the shower. You don't need to go to church to practice your religious conviction. You can do all of that anywhere. 
So if you have a friend who ever says to you, hey, listen, I'm a Christian, but I don't have to go to church to be a Christian, just say yes and end that conversation. You can do anything. Download John Piper, sing a song, have an amazing worship experience, and then give to the poor. You've covered everything except only in a community of faith, only in a body of believers, only in a place like this with imperfect people like me can you practice loving and being loved as Jesus loved. It's the only reason why we should come to a place like this and gather as God's people so that we can energize and practice this essence of our faith. So uh, I want to say this gently, though it's not my nature. If you're just coming to GBC so that you can worship, it's not a bad thing, but God wants more for you. If you're only here to satisfy your religious obligations, it's not awesome. God desires more for us. God desires us to model what it's like to love and even more difficult to be loved. Because I know why some of you leave immediately. Because you feel uncomfortable. You're not used to an unconditional affection. You think somebody is disingenuous or, or somebody's got some agenda or, or somebody might, might want to ask you to do something you don't want to do. You're just not used to being loved. And this is the essence of who we are. To love and to be loved. But second. There's the rest of us. He gives an example of the antithesis, the opposite of love. In verse 12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Notice the connection between being and doing. Do not be like Cain. His own deeds were evil. His brothers were righteous. So Cain exists for all eternity as a tragic prototype for the opposite of love. But notice why he didn't have love. He had religion. In fact, he was in the middle of practicing his religion when this idea stirred up in his heart. I think, you know, I'm going to kill my brother. If what we have is religion then we are no different than any other people who exist on this planet. That's why Moses cried out to God in Deuteronomy chapter thir- thir- sorry, Exodus 31 saying, God, if you don't go with us, what will distinguish us from all the other peoples on the surface of this earth? We will just be another group of people doing religious activity, trying to make ourselves righteous if you do not go with us. I think it's interesting that God showed his love even for Cain by launching an intervention. Did did you notice that in Genesis chapter 4? Even before he did the deed, the Lord intervened and said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, 
I don't know if you're connecting all the doing in here. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is against you. It's contrary to you. All those things your flesh craves, it's against you. They're hostile to you. Your appetite is against you. You must steward it. You must rule over it. That's God's intervention. It's not a surprise that the religious have always hated the righteous. That's why there's nothing more evil and more horrific than religious war. Cain hated Abel. The Pharisees hated Jesus. And John in verse 13 says, Don't be surprised, church, if the world hates you. You see, the solution is not to be a cool church. It's not to make yourself attractive. Because it goes back to the beginning of the time. People are religious naturally. Even atheists are religiously atheists. It's a no-God religion. It's a I'm-the-God religion. I do works of kindness and self-righteousness. I don't need God to help me. The religious have always hated the righteous. I'm saying to us right now, GBC, Singaporeans, they don't need to hear a new song. They don't need to hear our version of religious dogma. They don't need a new church building, 17 Matar Road. What Singaporeans really need is they need to be loved and they need to love. This is the essence, the indispensable quality of the fellowship that we have in Christ. And then we're introduced to the example of love in verse 14. We know we've passed out of death into life because we've been baptized. Oh, some of you are paying attention. Thank you. Uh, Let me take another run at this. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we faithfully support the ministry. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love, even if they've been baptized, even if they're faithfully doing work, he who does not love abides yet in death. You see, I picked up some stuff from my Scottish immigrant parents. A stubborn streak. Inappropriate joking. Saying things in a meeting that has no meaning except it entertains me. I get that from my parents. But when we have been transformed by the love of Christ, we start getting stuff from our spiritual parents. We start producing the fruit of His Spirit instead of the fruit of our own DNA. The fruit of His Spirit. What is first? Love. That's the characteristic. Love, joy, peace, patience, 
kindness, gentleness, self-control. It doesn't come from a yoga class. It doesn't come from a self-help group. It comes from His Spirit. Love is the evidence of His Spirit. This should settle the argument once and for all. What is the evidence that we are believers? Is it the gift of tongues like some of the happy Baptists say? Is it the ability to to share a testimony that's well written? Is it a gifted delivery of a speech? No. Is love. Is self-sacrificial love. It's the thing that verifies that I've crossed over from the grave into life. It is the thing that is evidence of my spiritual father's DNA rising up in me. And if I don't have that, then I'm only coming here to teach you how to be Canadian. What a waste. Love is a thing that verifies who we are and who lives in us. And and friend, if you are alive in Christ... His sacrificial affection has infected you and you will be like a viral contagion. You're not loving because you hope you can get more people in the water. You are loving because you can't help yourself. It's just the supernatural byproduct of His life in us. And now, John establishes Jesus as the greatest example Not the missionary, not the pastor, but Jesus. By this we know love. You want to know what love looks like. We know love because he laid down his life for us. And that means we also ought to lay down our lives for each other. I'll be honest, most of us know about love, right, in the church? Are we, we... We know that there is a word in Greek for love that many scholars believe was actually just invented to try and describe how extraordinarily affected people were by this Christ, this Jesus. We even have a church in Singapore, a Baptist church, named after this love in Greek. It's agape. Would it surprise you to know that that's not really the word that John is obsessing over? Because for John and for Jesus, agape was a noun. He's not hoping we could get a thing called love. He's not hoping we could somehow stumble or fall into a thing called love. He's not talking about agape, the noun. He's talking about agape, oh, the verb. Because for Jesus, for John, love is something that is done it's, it's an action to be accomplished daily. It's this sacrificial agapeo. 21 times in this little thin book, he uses the verb for love, sacrificial, self-giving. I lay myself down. 21 times he uses this verb, agapeo. This is evidence of Christ outworking in me. Sixteen years old. This young Armenian lady 
felt a calling to lay her life down. So she went to India, spent the rest of her life pouring her life out for the poorest of the poor, for the sick, impoverished. You probably know her as Mother Teresa. Ah. So I, I was a bit of a fan. I don't know if it's okay for a Baptist to love Catholics, but um, I, I'm just laying it out there. And I have quite a few books written on Mother Teresa. And one, one of them was a reporter for New York Times who just decided, I, I'm going to go to Calcutta. I'm going to spend a, a month or six weeks just living life, just watching her. So he writes one particular observation he had when he was following her around, just taking notes in his notebook, and, and suddenly a young nun came running up saying, Holy Reverend Mother, uh, they've brought, just brought in a girl. We don't know what to do with her. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm very anxious. She, I don't know if she's going to live. And, and Mother Teresa turned to the reporter and said, Please excuse me. And she followed this young nun, and the reporter came running after her with his notebook and pencil in tow. And as soon as the door opened, he, he started gagging. The smell was so horrific. And he, and he heard the story about how this young girl had been struck down in the streets of Calcutta, and, and people just walked around her. N not all day, all month. And Mother Teresa had walked in, and this girl was laid down in this cot. She sat on the cot and put this girl's head on her lap, and the reporter noted how the blood and pus was spreading stains on her white garments. And he watched as Mother Teresa, with her hands, began to pull maggots out of her wounds. And just barely able to control his gag reflex, he said, how, how can you do that? And when this little woman looked up, there were tears streaming down her face. She said, it's easy. When I look at this child, I see my Jesus. Do you remember when a religious teacher came up to Jesus in Luke chapter 10? Begins at verse 25. Jesus had been teaching about the kingdom of God. This religious teacher comes up to him. Seminary professor. Says, teacher, I've heard you teaching these little people. But what about me? What must somebody like me do to be saved? And Jesus said, well, you teach it, right? What does your law say? He was ready for a pop quiz. He said, I know. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if some of us were there, we would have said, well, wrong answer. Got to say the sinner's prayer. Right? Got to lead into it. If God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. But here's what's shocking. Jesus responds to him and said, you are correct. Do this and you will live. He didn't say believe it. 
He didn't say think about it. He didn't say sing songs about this. He said, do this, and you will live. That person that you're unhappy with, maybe they're even sitting in this room. Maybe you've tried to position yourself in a way that would keep you from having to interact. That person just might be Jesus wrapped up in Singaporean flesh. Whenever you have done it to the least of these, my brothers, you've, you've done it for me. And so in a tender moment, John uses this term, not for all children, the tenderest term for his children, little children. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. How is it, friends, that the gospel can be in this part of the world for over 550 years and still so few have been unattracted to the, or attracted to the irresistible Jesus. It can only be because we think about love, we study love, we sing about it, but we don't do it that well. It's not a part of who we are. It's the essence. It's the indispensable quality. And, and the, the way we begin to practice that is right here in a place like this, full of imperfect people like you and like me. It is God's design for the sake of the gospel that the essence of all that we are is love. The motivation of all that we do is not doctrinal integrity, but love. It's good to have doctrinal integrity. But if we have doctrinal integrity and arrogance, if we have doctrinal integrity and self-righteousness, it is of no power. But if we have doctrinal integrity, we will be informed that the essence of who we are, the indispensable quality, is agapeo, loving one another as Christ has loved us. And so this, the final word, as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. This is how we know what love is. Because he spread out his arms and laid down his life for us. This is how we know. It's not just because someone came and shared information. We are a product of love. We're not just a product of missionary activity. We're a product of Calvary love. Of sacrificial love. We are a product of Christ's agapeo. His affection. And so, 
This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. I want to invite you to bow with me as we prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table. As the brothers come to assist us in serving the Lord's table, we we are commanded in Scripture to take the Lord's Supper cautiously. We are encouraged to examine our hearts. And and by the way, if you're here and you're not a believer, let, let me just encourage you, you won't become a believer by eating a dry piece of biscuit and drinking some juice. It's of no benefit. It's not magical. So if you're not a follower of Christ, just, just let the cup go by. Let, let the biscuit go by. It's, it's not going to help you. But for the rest of us, for those of us who consider ourselves followers of Jesus, we don't come perfect. But we come repenting. We come turning. Turning from the appetite that caused Cain to kill his brother. Turning from religion that has destroyed nations. Turning from ourselves because we are incapable of loving. So so first, I want to challenge you with this. While while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed and, and you're just in front of the God who made you and who loves you sacrificially, I want to challenge you because you have been raised by a toxic love. The love that you were taught in your culture cannot save you and it cannot help you. In fact, it is destroying you because you were learned that you are loved if you do something in return. Your parents love you if you're a good child. Your teachers love you if you do well in their class. Young lady, that guy will love you if you sleep with him. Girls will love me if I'm funny. Imagine this. God loves you for no good reason. It's not because you're sitting here today. It's not because you're a good person. It's not because you're deserving. He loves you because it's in his essence to love. It's one of his indispensable qualities. He's the God who seeks. Why is he seeking? Because he loves you. So as you are doing business with God, please don't bargain with him. Please don't think you bring anything to the table. Say, God, I have nothing except a sudden, intense awareness that you love me for no good reason. And then maybe some of us need to ask this question. How am I doing love? Have I visited? Have I clothed? Have I fed? How have I loved him this week? How am I loving him today? Have I encouraged somebody? Have I consoled? 
Have I included somebody? Have I laid down anything? Have I laid down my right to nurture personal offense? Have I laid down my right to be right all the time? Have I laid down my right to personal preference? Have I laid down anything? As we come to prepare, would you be willing to say, God, I'm coming to you now. Before I come to the table to remember when Christ laid down his life for me, I lay myself down. Conquer me completely. Take every thought captive. Do such a work of love in me that people will just wonder what has happened to you. Father God, as we bow before you, we recognize that you are a God who needs nothing, and yet you desire a relationship with an imperfect people. You are a God who comes seeking, compelled not by our good work, not by our appearance. You are compelled by your own affection. How grateful we are. That at the right time, you sent your Son, all of your glory, pressed into the flesh of a Palestinian Jew. You sent Jesus, who bore the wrath of all our sin, who gave us in exchange your righteousness. So God, we come to this table not celebrating any righteousness but yours. We come determined to love better, to love more visibly, to love more actively, to love sacrificially, not because we plan it to happen, but because you live in us in desire that your name be glorified. Do it again. For your name's sake we pray.